0: today's show is brought to you by hearst ranch grass-fed beef available on the internet at hearstranch.com
1: Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. My guest today is Michelle Simon. Michelle is a public health lawyer who has been researching and writing about the food industry and food politics since 1996. She specializes in legal strategies to counter corporate tactics that harm the public's health. She is the author of Appetite for Profit How the Food Industry Undermines Our Health and How to Fight Back. She is also the president of Eat Drink Politics, an industry watchdog consulting firm, and she also She also posts on a blog called um, Appetite for Profit, or she has a newsletter called Appetite for Profit, which I read religiously, and I urge others to do the same. Michelle, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Michelle, tell us about um, what, first of all, what is a public health lawyer? I've never heard anyone describe themselves that way before. Tell us what that is and describe a day in the life.
2: Sure. Well, most people think of lawyers that um, go to trial and are suing people. And um, public health lawyers work to shape the environment that we live in through public policy to make healthy choices easier for people. So it could be, say, in the realm of um, tobacco control or um, alcohol policy, which I've also worked in. When it comes to food, it means... uh, you know, literally looking at the environment that people live in. So why do we have McDonald's and, uh, you know, junk food stores on every corner? Why is there so much advertising? All of these ways that the environment really shapes our behavior. And knowing that education, just telling people how to eat better, does not work. And scientifically, we know that that does not work. Instead, what does work is really changing public policy. And so a public health lawyer helps advocates um, shape uh, public policy through better laws at the local, state, federal level, and really, um, you know, helps to make choices easier, healthy choices easier for people.
1: So for instance, then you would work on well, tell us like who hires you? Who's hiring you? And and what kind of cases are you Mm -hmm. working on right now? Well, um, I do work
2: with a couple of law firms on litigation and one litigation is litigation is one tool in the toolbox to um, hold industry accountable for example for deceptive marketing practices mm-hmm. but um, most of my work is involved in promoting better public policy. so I work with an, a handful of nonprofits uh, by way of writing about improving food safety laws for example the problems around food marketing to children really bringing attention to the role of the food industry and undermining public policy so my work in Involves, um, you know, a variety of uh, uh, raising awareness on a variety of public policy tools that um, will really improve the food system.
1: And and so, with that being the case, you know, in terms of of altering food policy, what what would you say are the most uh, impressing issues that need to be addressed regarding the food industry? Or is it marketing? Is it ingredients? Is it I don't know? Is it more transparency? Right. Well, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I would say all all of those are very important. Um, When it comes to nutrition, um, the number one issue is really food marketing to children. Mm -hmm. And this is an area that unfortunately uh, the advocacy world has really not gotten very far with thanks to the incredible power of the junk food industry and the media industry that has been lobbying um, like tooth and nail during the Obama administration to stop any efforts from going forward, and then um, when it comes to food safety, definitely um, things like you know better testing methods, better inspection. The Food and Drug Administration just is not funded enough to properly inspect imports, for example. And so the recent outbreak in um, tuna scrape in sushi Mm -hmm. was due to uh, imported sushi, which most people would be surprised to know that, in fact, 80 percent of our Seafood supply is imported. So issues like that are, are, you know, at the top of my list.
1: What about, what did you think of the Food Safety Modernization Act? Do you think it went far enough? Do you think it's being implemented? I mean, I feel like they didn't fund it, and so therefore a lot of the right. uh, sort of new regulations that were proposed haven't really taken any effect yet. What's your take on that?
2: Right. Well, that was uh, certainly a big victory, and we did get some um, industry you know, uh, sort of agreement to help get that bill through. And it was a tremendous uh, improvement, at least in theory, in, um, you know, bringing more tools to um, FDA to do better inspections, both um, at home and with imports. But you're right, the problem has come in that Congress has not appropriated the full amount of funding that's needed to implement the law. And there has been some increase in funding, but not enough. And where things stand now is there are four uh, different regulations that FDA is required to uh, put into motion as a result of this law, and the deadline actually passed in January Mm -hmm. for us to see the beginnings of these regulations. Um, We are told that uh, at least one or two of them are going to come out any day now, one particularly on improving produce inspection. And so, um, you know, it remains to be seen how this law will be implemented.
1: Absolutely. What did you think of the proposed uh, new uh, inspection rules around the poultry industry, which even made the mainstream media, um, where there would be fewer inspectors, <laughs> and the industry would be expected to police itself. What uh, do you think that the, that the industry's suggestion, that, or FDA's suggestion, that these uh, inspectors are going to be, you know, testing more product as it leaves the door, as opposed to being on the line looking for visual cues? Do you think that's actually going to be more or less effective?
2: Right. Well, it was actually um, USDA, which regulates meat and poultry inspection. Mm -hmm. And um, you're right. So this is uh, an idea that came from the poultry industry, no surprise, to basically scale back the number of USDA inspectors and um, leave more of the work up to industry themselves. And. You know, my um, take on it comes from seeing the very visceral negative reaction from the USDA inspectors who, you know, held protests. I mean, I've never seen USDA inspectors holding a protest outside the USDA, not just because their jobs are on the line, but because they really care about the safety of our meat supply. Right. And they say this would be a. Uh, unmitigated disaster for um, public health to have to you know turn over a lot of this inspection to an industry which already puts all kinds of pressure on inspectors I mean inspectors are you know just under so much pressure to keep the lines moving they get harassed if they try to stop the line for any reason and so forth and so there are many groups that are trying to stop this from going forward and the USDA is being very about it, saying they think it will actually improve things. Now, there's no question. You know, there are probably some outdated modes of inspection, like you know, the old-fashioned poke and sniff doesn't exactly work in the day of in the days of E. coli and Salmonella. So, right. you know, I'm all for uh, modernizing when it makes sense to do so in a you know technological way. But often, this word modernizing is used by industry to really um, mean deregulate.
1: Right. That was my impression as well. I mean, the idea that an industry should be, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, policing itself um, just seemed... Really, almost lunatic to me. So I'm I'm really hoping that <laughs> that they get the USDA gets the funding it needs to uh, you know, push back and keep the um, inspectors on the line as well as doing that uh, microbial testing at the end of the line. Um, one of the things that scares the bejesus out of me about what is going on in in uh, commercialized livestock production is the uh, heavy use of antibiotics. And since 1977, um, I think that was when the first uh, sort of regulations started coming in, but never were actually implemented. And so now what we're seeing uh, played out is that antibiotics are not only rampant uh, within the animals themselves and we're seeing these new strains of, of uh, pathogens that are becoming resistant but more importantly it's uh, polluting the groundwater and even in the soil and thus it's coming up in the roots of plants and so forth. So what, what do you think it's going to take to get government to really put the kibosh on this crazy use of antibiotics in the food chain?
2: Yeah. Well, (laughs) unfortunately, it's probably going to take, you know, some kind of more clear crisis, I guess, than we already have. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we've had report after report come out from whether it's an independent agency or even government itself saying, we have a public health crisis on our hands with this overuse of antibiotics. You know, now we're seeing more and more uh, bacterial strains showing up um, in humans that are antibiotic resistant. And if that's not, you know, enough of a crisis moment, it's hard to know what would be. But, you know, we have FDA that's, um, you know, been sued to try and take action. They took some kind of uh, very minimal steps recently by calling on the pharmaceutical industry to take voluntary steps to curb this practice. And as we know, just, I mean, in any issue, voluntary uh, action does not work. And, right. um, you know, what's really going on is this is politics as usual. I mean, you, you know, you pick your issue and there's an industry behind it. And in this case, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is as much to blame as the the you know animal factory farm industry and you know what we really need to look at is why what kind of practices are you know are we engaging in that require the use of antibiotics to this extent in the first place? You know, I mean, it's, of, of course, because of these factory farm conditions that uh, that the um, players feel like they need these drugs, and that's really what we need to take a hard look at.
1: Well, you know, I think, wasn't it the Danish who banned the use of antibiotics some time ago, and I'm not clear whether or not they found uh, the antibiotic-resistant strains uh, dropping accordingly, or whether their livestock got sick more than it had been. Are you familiar with that whole practice? I'm,
2: I'm slightly familiar with the, the, what I understand is that the sky didn't fall. Right. And, of course, industry, you know, always uses scare tactics <laughs> to make us think, oh, my God, yeah. you know, the animals will just be dropping like flies and so forth. And you're right that um, they did ban the use of antibiotics and the sky did not fall. In other words, showing us that it can be done.
1: Right. It can be done. But I think that the industry would like us to believe that meat will go sky high in price. I think that's what they're right. You know, they constantly use the idea of food prices escalating as the cudgel with which to beat everyone into submission. And it's, uh, you know, it remains to be seen <laughs> how much longer people are willing to, you know, tolerate that. I mean, I see certainly I live in New York City, and there's a real hub uh, here for, you know, buying local buying from farms. We have fantastic farmers markets. And I'm sure you're out in Seattle right Right,
2: California
1: in California, Northern you obviously California. have the same, yeah, obviously, you have the same options, um, but it 's it is troubling to think that you know there is this great swath of of the you know flyover country where not only are there fewer farmers markets but there seems to be less awareness of, you know, what the implications of these practices are going to be uh, going forward. Um, The fact that antibiotics are found in waterways, like not just here, but worldwide, that it's, you know, their bird feces are impregnated with antibiotics. It's amazing how much it spreads around. It's even in nature preserves, um, as well as, of course, any water that's near a feedlot or a city or something like that. And then our crops are irrigated with that water. Medicines are found in soil. Crops are taking them up through their roots. So I guess, you know, this was the question that you were you know a little maybe a little um i don't know what not quite understanding but it how can anybody claim that their stuff is organic um when basically soil seems to be so um widely contaminated and water seems to be widely contaminated these are things you can't really control for i mean what do you think is going to happen to the organic labeling and the organic quote-unquote you know sector of the of the food industry
2: Right. Well, I think you're raising a good point that, you know, we're contaminating the environment to such an extent that um, it's it's harder and harder for those farmers that want to do the right thing, that want to engage in responsible and ethical practices, um, are able to do so. And now, you know, we have problems with things like drift, you know, genetically engineered crops that are Mm -hmm. drifting over into organic crops so much that we can't, always trust uh, the GMO-free label. And there's, uh, you know, certain standards for that, allowing for drift, understanding that some small percentage may be even in GMO-free crops. Um, But, you know, I mean, the good news is we do have uh, a growing movement in this country to uh, try and, you know, increase organic production and so forth. And But we still need to change public policy. I mean, it's really about um, changing our agricultural policies to help support those types of practices and, of course, conserving land and and all of that. And we're not seeing um, much progress in that realm in the current debates around the Farm Bill. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we definitely need to be taking a harder look at that. I think what's happened with organics is it's sort of been um, kind of relegated to this, okay, so we got the organic seal. So now it's its own kind of niche market instead of thinking about how to integrate organics into the broader system of uh, agricultural production, you know, not just say, well, it's something over here and we're going to let these people kind of have their organics. And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. the rest of the system is business as usual. I mean, that's not sustainable.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Um, We're going to take a short uh, 30 second sponsor drop and then we'll be right back with Michelle Simon, a public health lawyer who is the author of Appetite for Profit.
0: Grass fed beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass fed beef, free range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. I
1: just love that song. Thank you, Brian Kenny. Thank you, Burst Ranch. And thank you for staying with us on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm speaking today with Michelle Simon, a public health attorney who has um, been researching and writing about food and food politics and she is also the author of Appetite for Profit and runs a news blog um, also called Appetite for Profit, which is how we got to know each other, Michelle. Um, You know, in the last segment, we just quickly touched on GMO and I'm going to jump over the snacks portion of this um, story and we're going to get back to it. But just to talk for a second about labeling issues um, like GMO foods or uh, lean, finely textured beef, also known as pink slime, um why is it so freaking hard to get these people to to force them to be compliant about labeling what's i mean how do they get to boss everybody around like that i don't get it yeah well the food industry is very powerful
2: and uh the thing is they don't want consumers to know the truth about what they're eating because if they found out the, the the dirty truth they may change their mind about what they're purchasing and so you know transparency isn't really something the food industry is very interested in and they fight tooth and nails um for any kind of labeling requirements that come along and then they sort of water down the effort to get to, you know, have to reveal the least amount of information possible, and that's just the name of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they get away with it by claiming, for example, with GMOs, well, you know, consumers don't really need to be confused with more labeling because it's just a process, right, that does nothing that really changes in the final uh, you know, in the outcome of the actual product, that this is simply a process and, you know, why should we bother this the poor little consumer with this complicated information? And it's all obviously just a game to keep us from knowing how our food is produced because, you know, the truth is there are real consequences to uh, tinkering with the DNA of our food supply. But, you know, Monsanto and friends don't want people to know that.
1: Who else is doing that besides Monsanto? I mean, they're like the big bugaboo, but there's got to be other companies that are also very involved in genetically modifying um, organisms of one type or another.
2: Yeah, well, there's, you know, sort of two or three top seed companies that own almost the entire seed supply. Another one is Syngenta. Um, right. and, you know, and it, then it's also the it's not just the this uh, seed-supplying companies, but it's the entire processed food industry that obviously benefits from this technology, and so they're going to be right there, along with Monsanto, making sure that these foods are labeled, because obviously the likes of Kraft and Kellogg's and, and General Mills don't want to have um, products labeled, because, it, again, it's going to scare off consumers from buying their products.
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, you know, interestingly, this week, I'm going to be going down to D.C. to the National Food Policy Conference. I don't know if you read about that. And um, Vilsack is going to be appearing and various other um, earthy-crunchy types. But what made me laugh was when I looked at the sponsors, and it's all people like Kraft and General Foods and Kellogg's. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, National Food Policy, yeah. I know what we're going to be talking about. Um, Let's talk a little bit about snacks or junk foods. Um, You know, I have a teenage kid, and... uh, in her school lunchroom, there are vending machines and there's lots and lots of choices uh, between Doritos, potato chips, Pringles, pretzels, you name it. Um, And I recently read a study uh, that showed that 25% of the average child's daily calorie intake is coming from snack foods such as chips and, you know, the like. The culprit, uh, among other things, uh, is heavy marketing to children via TV. So, you know, in the wake of... um, more public awareness about uh, marketing to kids for bad foods and trying to just try to get some of those um, programs, some of those co- commercials off the air. Do you see any difference in how snacks are marketed to kids, or do you think it's still business as usual?
2: Oh no, there's no difference. I mean, if anything, <laughs> things have gotten worse uh-huh. in the age of digital technology. I mean, kids are now bombarded with messages, you know, practically uh, all day long because they can go from one screen to the next, and whether they're watching TV or playing a simple video game, they can be um, targeted with messages to eat all kinds of junk food, and of course they go to school, Um, the place, the one place that should be a safe haven from the the corporate predatory marketing, um, you know, they're bombarded with the vending machines there, and so, you know, this is a, a huge problem, and we really haven't. Uh, figured out how to address it again because the food industry is just so damn powerful, and they know that they have to get to kids while they're young. Kids are highly impressionable, they're vulnerable, and then they're making um, brand choices for life. So that's why it's critically important for, you know, Coke and Pepsi to be vying for that child's uh, brand loyalty.
1: Absolutely. Um, Do you think that Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign and some of the noise that comes out of the White House has had any impact whatsoever on changing children's eating habits? Well, um,
2: there's good news and bad news about the First Lady's Let's Move program. The good news is she's absolutely done a good job of raising awareness, bringing attention to this very critical problem of childhood obesity and, and food deserts and, you know, school food and so forth. I mean, she, obviously having someone of her stature talk about these issues has been um, very good. She was also... uh critically important in getting improvements to uh, the school meal program with the last Mm -hmm. revision of the Child Reauthorization Act. And um, so that's been, I would say, the most sort of uh, positive um, practical policy that we can point to that she helped move. Um, The bad news is uh, she's really been pretty silent. It's in... Since the very early days on the issue of junk food marketing to children, and um, you know obviously her powers of uh, persuasion and, and policy change are limited and you know there 's no question that in the last few months we 've seen a deliberate uh, sort of silencing of uh, of her program on this issue in the wake of the um, food industry's lobbying onslaught, and of course now with her husband needing to get reelected mm-hmm. and so um, you know, she's taking up exercise as the, the you know, the focus now of the program, which is really, to me, just a big distraction. The key issue is uh, junk food marketing to children. And we're not going to hear a peep out of her about that.
1: Not until after the election. Then I hope she comes out with all guns blazing. Um, do you think I that... Am, don't hold your breath. <laughs> well, I don't know. She's got four years, you know, I mean, after, I, I mean, I firmly believe, and I I say this, over and over, as kind of a mantra that Obama will be reelected, um, because I believe that if you say it, it will happen, and um, that's the kind of magical thinking I like to indulge in. And um, but I do think, in his case, I think he will be reelected, and I do think that she will have an opportunity to really, um, you know, uh, rattle some cages in a way that she hasn't uh, been allowed to do or hasn't wanted to do in the previous term. Anyway, let's let's go I on. Hope you're though. Right. Yeah, right. Um, let's move on here because I wanted one of the questions that I asked. I have Marian Nessel on many times. And I've had lots of other people who sort of talk about marketing to kids and nutrition and stuff. And one of the questions that really um, intrigues me is, should there be regulations about where snack foods are sold? Like, not in school vending machines, there should not be like, wasn't it California that banned having a McDonald's anywhere near a school? or within a certain range, mm. they couldn't have it. Um, I know there was one state yeah. that adopted that regulation. Um, shouldn't you there know, be more it of was that? Los Angeles County. Oh, it was Los Angeles County. Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, ooh. That <laughs> so was one, one lone county. But anyway, the point is, is that they were able to push that through in local legislation. Shouldn't there well, be more, you know, counties and states that are trying to do that?
2: Okay. So just to be clear, um, Los yeah. Angeles... Uh, attempted a moratorium. So, I mean, it, it's not doing anything about the Existing. the ballots um, that are already there, but they are uh, trying to at least stop new outlets from coming in. And that is one approach to take. So this is uh, under the heading of zoning law. And um, so that's, you know, but it's very difficult to get those kinds of laws done, but it, it's certainly possible. And then, um, yes, as far as, like, vending machines in school again it just seems like a no-brainer we do have an opportunity coming up to try and improve policy in that realm and that the USDA know we previous got some new regulations regarding school meals which didn't which we got some improvements for yeah. but uh, the processed food industry pushed back on that well the next set of regulations that are due out any day now are on what are called competitive foods so these mm-hmm. are uh, foods that are sold outside the school meal program through vending machines and um, we need to you know obviously improve that situation and of course we'll have a big fight on our hands with the junk food industry pushing back on um, what that looks like But um, there are ways that we can control the food environment, some of it through zoning laws, like we discussed, or um, through school meals. But... You know, a lot of this really comes down to um, why these types of foods are so cheap and ubiquitous, and it's much mm-hmm. bigger than just, you know, looking at it at the local level. There are obviously sure. agricultural policies, um, you know, um, even minimum wage laws. I mean, there's a whole range of uh, sort of policies that go into what has created this ubiquitous cheap food supply. And I also, you know, Want to bring up what you mentioned earlier, this scare tactic that the food industry uses that oh well if we you know if we don't use these types of uh, harmful environmental practices, you know antibiotics and other types of agricultural policies, then food prices are going to go up and you know my response to that is well, you know two things first of all. Some foods, uh, we want to be more expensive. One of the best sort of public health policies we have um, is to actually make the wrong things more expensive. So a good example being tobacco, we want to tax tobacco to make it more expensive, to make it less desirable to purchase. Same thing holds with certain um, junk foods, right? I mean, people are buying... Um, soda and junk food and highly processed meats because they are so cheap well if we make them more expensive they're they're going to buy less of them um, but of course that also means we have to improve people's living conditions right I mean the minimum wage has been stagnated for years so mm-hmm. all kinds of you know broader social policies that we need to look at to make people be able to afford the good stuff right so when we talk about um, better sustainable practices and having to more for the you know for the true cost of food that means we need to make sure people can afford it.
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing that I like to say is we also have to make sure that people know how to cook it because you mm-hmm. can <laughs> you can you can hand out those 2 for 1 bucks in every farmers market in the country and if nobody knows how to cook a kohlrabi or a head of kale uh, you know, you might as well just flush it. So um, I'm, I'm all for uh, more education in the school system uh, for home economics. I just think that's like an integral part of this system. And I think that once we abandoned home ec, among other things, um, but I think that losing home ec in the public school system was the very beginning of the end of, of cooking at home. That and the fact that, you know, two-income families became the norm. So um, you, you touched on a subject there about ac- alcohol and tobacco being taxed. We have to wrap this up in just a second, but I just want to get this I mean why I mean I think I absolutely think there should be a soda tax I absolutely think that there should be taxes on these junk foods and um, I'm wondering what it is that Congress is you know Dragging their feet on about this. I mean, I know they all rely on those campaign contributions, but I mean, surely the economic cost to our health, ne- never mind our environment, um, would propel them into the arms of raising those taxes. Perhaps not this year, but you know. <laughs>
2: uh-huh.
1: Yeah, good luck with that.
2: Yeah. Um, taxes are the third <laughs> rail of politics.
1: Yeah, so true. Uh,
2: you know, health care costs be damned. Politicians don't care no, about health care costs they care about you know the, the next contribution is coming from the soda lobby mm. and that's what's keeping that from moving forward and it's not just at in congress it's it's states and cities all over the country sure. where advocates have been trying to get soda taxes passed and you know i mean i, I think that they're there could be something to this approach but it remains to be seen and um I think we need to be looking at all possible policy approaches to shift prices in the right direction. I'm not sure taxes are they're not the only approach. And um, you know, I just think it's it's an extremely uphill battle and we need to be smart about the types of issues we take on with our limited resources and, you know, like I said, the the picture around pricing is so complicated and you know, I have a lot of experience with this in the alcohol realm and I just, you know, very Um, I'm skeptical about this idea of soda and junk food taxes, given the huge lobbying pushback that we can expect. But, um, you know, but it's good to get these ideas out there, get the conversation going, and that's certainly what we need to be doing. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the more people sort of recognize that you know, that there is a connection between what they eat, their health, you know, food prices and all of that stuff, there might be a little more movement. Unfortunately, Michelle, it's fascinating, though you certainly are, we have to wrap this up. Um, so I want you to tell people like about your website, any speaking engagements that you're going to be participating in, you know, anything else you want to um, share with my audience. And um, sure. I hope you'll be a guest again another time. So, so tell us about Appetite for Profit. Sure.
2: So, my uh, blog and information about my book is at appetiteforprofit.com. You can sign up on my mailing list there, and there's links to finding me on all forms of social media. And then um, my consulting website is at eatdrinkpolitics.com. You can find me at either of those places.
1: Fantastic. Well, this has been terrific. I really hope you'll join me again. Uh, I want to thank my sponsor, Hearst Ranch, for sponsoring my show, my producer, Jack Inslee. And we'll see you next week with the Mac Daddy of Vertical Farming. Professor Dixon Pommier himself will be in the house. See you next week, folks. Thanks for
0: listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.